0: Hey, hey, hey. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to another edition here of Critical Q&A, the live show. (laughs) Hey, everybody. Happy to have you here. I see some of the usual suspects in the comment section, and that is awesome. Uh, Let's go ahead and switch over to the uh, chat view here, where uh, they'll start popping up on the screen in a minute or two and uh yes hello friends um so welcome to this uh live show for sunday july 23rd in the year of our lord 2023 (laughs) um yeah i'll have to check that out um we're getting a comment already in here on uh tony's interview with valerie and yes i think I know what you're referring I I, I I kind of recall what you're referring to I'll have to take a look at that article again because I don't know what the uh, what you're looking at on that but I think you were right that um, that I had a little bit of a something not quite right about that too but not sure yes you're of our Xenu Lord, that is right um so i can't I can't think of that off the top of my head I don't remember um, that I, I I get too much stuff um I wanted to begin the show as people start showing it coming in and and we get the show going here. I was reading this this morning and I just thought this was, um, you know, I'm not I'm not the funniest person in the world, but sometimes I read stuff online that absolutely cracks me up and. Uh, one of the things I was looking at this morning that I was really getting a belly uh, full over was um, the dumbest things a customer has ever said. This was on a social media site, and there was the whole thread of people contributing uh, dumbest things that people have ever, uh, that customers have ever said. And some of these, you know, I'm sure you guys have seen these things. Some of these are classics, but some of these were just so good, I just could not resist sharing them with you. Um Because you really have to wonder about people sometimes. I mean, but at the same time, I have to think, boy, have I put my mouth, you know, have I opened up my mouth, and uh, the only reason I do is to take my foot out and put my other one in, you know, all the way to the knee. (laughs) It's just awful. Um, You know, what comes, what, what, here's a good question. What comes on the bacon, egg, and cheese croissant? Gee, I wonder. I wonder. Uh I didn't know there was beef in this chili. I'm a vegetarian. Oh really? You didn't know there was beef in the grass-fed beef chili? Uh whiskey on the rocks, no ice. I'd like a whiskey on the rocks, no ice, please. I'll have a black coffee with room for cream. <laughs> um I want the fish, but I don't want it to look like a fish. I'm vegan, so would you recommend the chicken? <laughs> I want a burger. This is an interesting one. I want a burger without the bottom bun. I can't eat this because it looks too nice. Can I just have a normal salad, please? Uh, When do you wake up the bears? This was in Yellowstone. When do you wake up the bears and let them out of their cages in the morning? Uh, Let's see. Can Oh, yes. At the uh, Hot Springs in Olympic National Park, can I drink the water? Yes, I very much would like you to drink that boiling hot water uh, full of minerals and people stuff. Anyway, is there chorizo in the chorizo fried rice? Yes, anyway, I will stop with that. Um, <laughs> all right, uh, good, so we got we got I think we got enough people on board to get started here. If you all want to start asking questions now would be the time. And I will uh, take them up one by one here. I'll have to uh, oh yes, here's why the press should be asking Tom Cruise about Shelly Miscavige. Yeah, this was a pretty interesting inside look at the at the dynamics of their relationship of Shelly and Dave, which I found um, interesting. It was in- interesting um, it was an interesting article i mostly I mostly enjoyed this. Oh, sure. Okay. All right. We got a couple coming in here. Let's go ahead and start talking about these. <laughs> no, not exactly false attesting to OT8. Adam Richards puts a comment in here. Uh, also, as an OT8, shouldn't Tom have just made it go right in his meetings with the guilds? No control over Mest. false attesting to OT8. Yeah, they'll. Uh, he's he's definitely not um, not bringing his OT powers to this uh, whole writer's strike and uh, actor's guild strike right now, and that is a major, major flunk and disappointment on the part of Tom Cruise that he's not settled all of this already with his OT powers. Yeah, spot on there. Um, now, F- Fabian asks, can you give an example, can you give examples for LRH redefining words and the goal of redefining those words? Absolutely. Uh, loaded language is a, uh, let's go ahead and get into this, loaded language, right? Um, one of the ways that you can get people to think the way you want them to, rather than the way they are thinking already with their own ideas, is to control the definitions or meanings of words. Um, and this is a this is a, 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 it's a, it's a very powerful form of manipulation. And my favorite example is the one that I'm going to – is the one I'll use because, um, because I think it demonstrates the point really, really well. There are, there are other examples in Scientology of this. They have a dictionary that's this thick full of definitions of terms, and many of them are just regular English words. Intention, um, even misunderstood, uh, becomes a different idea in uh, Scientology as in the misunderstood word, you have 10 different definitions of, or 10 different ways in which a word can be misunderstood. Uh, So that's interesting because, because misunderstood is just a, anyway, very specific thing, right? Um, But my favorite one is critical. And, uh, And of course, you guys have seen that I've, that I've based a lot of my, Channel around the word critical because it was because it's such a big use, uh, such a big change in Scientology as to how that word is defined. It's very, very specific in Scientology when you are being critical, or if you are critical of something, that means you're fault finding, criticizing. Uh, complaining about it, you know, finding issue with it. And Hubbard was critical of all kinds of things, most especially psychiatry, governments, um, medicine, science. I mean, he was critical of all kinds of things. But in Scientology, uh, you're not supposed to be critical of something, or if you are critical of it, then that means that you have overts, you have sins, moral transgressions, that you've committed against that thing. we talked about this thousands of times. Um, So Scientology harps on and emphasizes only this definition of critical and will only really think about it this way. So if you are engaged in critical thinking in Scientology... That means you're an asshole. That means you're a jerk, right? You're somebody who is finding fault with things all the time. A critical thinker in Scientology is a bad thing. It doesn't mean being discreet or rational or or logical or reasonable. It means being a jerk. So it's a bad thing in Scientology to be critical or to be a critical thinker. I'm not exaggerating this. I really am not. I, this is exactly how it is. You would think, oh, that's kind of cute. That's kind of funny. Well, of course, there's also Scientologists who are critical thinkers. No, there aren't. That's my point. Is Critical is made into a bad word in Scientology. Hey, top of the morning to you, Jessica. Um, so by redefining or emphasizing and and harping on that use of the word critical, Scientology turns it into a bad thing to be and a bad thing to do. And I don't think that's an accident. This is an example of loading the language, okay And loading the language uh, is a very, very powerful. Um, mechanism for controlling people loaded language also known as loaded terms strong emotive language high inference language and language persuasive techniques is rhetoric used to influence an audience by using words and phrases with strong connotations right so if you're in charge of or you're the one who's who's deciding what connotations belong with what words. And that's really what I'm saying here is that in Scientology, critical is a word that has all these connotations. It has all this this uh, strength to it. Um, right? And you will elicit, and it's often used to elicit a strong emotional response. Right? Being critical in Scientology will get you written up. You'll get reports written on you. You will be interviewed. You can be, end up being security checked. Uh, You know, forced confessionals And you can get in a lot of trouble Especially if you're critical of Scientology executives The Scientology itself, L. Ron Hubbard um, Staff members, you know, things like that They They have a very, very low tolerance for this I remember one time I was um, very, very new in Scientology. I was a brand new staff member, and I'd been sent down to full-time training down in Los Angeles. And I was uh, at breakfast in the main mess where all the Sea Org members eat. And I was a public person, but I was allowed to eat there, or a staff member, but I was allowed to eat there because we were training full-time. And I was sitting there talking to another student on the program, and I had a real problem with one of the supervisors. I was not, I did not like her. Uh, she was a Sea Org member, and she was pretty mean, and I just didn't get along with her. And one day at breakfast, I was sitting there, to, you know, uh, as they say, nattering up a storm. Uh, it, that's Scientology speak for complaining about my supervisor to my fellow student. I was like, man, I don't get along with her. I don't think she's, I don't think she likes me. I, I, this isn't good, right? And I really wasn't yet aware of all of these things. I'm telling you, this is how I learned it is I I knew it wasn't really a good idea to be Nattering, you know, complaining about people, but I was really pissed. I was really upset with this woman and the way she was treating me. I didn't think it was fair, and um, and I didn't like being supervised by her in the classroom. And so I was complaining about her. And this and this guy is just kind of mumbling into his cereal because he knows I'm not supposed to be doing this. And another Sea Org member looks over at me from her breakfast and goes, and just straight up across the room starts yelling at me. Will you shut up with your natter. All you're doing is sitting there nattering about your supervisor. You need to fucking pull your overts. You need to go right up your overts. What you're doing is totally off the rails and you need to shut the fuck up. That's exactly how she talked to me. And needless to say, that was rather You know, I had deer in the headlights syndrome immediately because I was not a brave stand up and, you know, take on the world kind of guy. And this was when I was 17 years old. So I was a brand new staff member and I was, you know, and I was having this issue. And so that day, you know, that guy I was complaining to and that woman both wrote a report on me after breakfast and I got dragged down to the ethics officer who uh, really laid into me about what an asshole I was for complaining about my supervisor and what a dickhead I was. And, And because I was being critical right and and for 3 days i was off course writing out my ows i had to write a ream of you know all my misdeeds and bad conduct because i was such a dick up to all of them right uh, it wasn't her it wasn't the supervisor who had any issues or problems it was all me because i was complaining and that's what, you know, that's what the redefinition of words will do to people's behavior is you don't have the right to complain or find fault with anybody. Um, you just need to shut up and take it. You know, sit down, take your abuse, right? Thank you, sir, may I have another, uh, is the attitude uh, in the, in Scientology, especially with the Sea Org toward staff members and public, and that's how I learned that. So, um, you know, relatively mild thing. We're just talking about verbal abuse, but that's the kind of way that that sort of thing goes on. All right. Here's a great question. If, as a staff member, if there are no customers, how do you keep busy? Okay. So, on this question, um, oh, staff members keep busy all the time. It's sort of like working fast food. They're very, very similar. You always need to be keeping busy. Right. Remember when you were working fast food and it's always like, come on, if there's nothing else to do, you can always clean. Like you're never supposed to be idle. There's never supposed to be a dull moment. There's never there's never any relaxation time or time to chill or or just, you know, chat and shoot the shit and stuff. As staff members, we certainly would. I mean, don't get me wrong. It's not that we didn't have our moments. But what you're supposed to be doing is either, you know, you could write letters to public. You're supposed to, every staff member has a letter quota and recovery quotas and income quotas in addition to doing their usual job, the thing they're actually assigned to do in the in the organization. Whether you're a supervisor, auditor, executive, registrar, um, go, you know, uh, grounds person, whatever your job is, you also have all these additional functions. And so... Staff are not supposed to be idle. They're supposed to be either doing the letter writing or call in, as as, as they call it, where you get on the phones and start calling people and trying to get them to come in, get them recovered or get them back in or bring them in for some other reason. Even if they were in yesterday, they should come in again today because there's a new video to watch or there's some event to see or there's some book to read or there's some class to do, right? There's always something to do in Scientology. Excuse me. And... The staff are supposed to be the ones who are. It's kind of like, um, what's that? What's that job where um, motivators? You know, like these these kind of motivational coaches, right? That's kind of the idea of a staff member. Is you're always up. You're always going, you're always enthusiastic about getting people in and doing stuff with them and getting Scientology across to people. And you're supposed to be like the self-starter kind of person who can always just get things going or get things done. And there's always backlogs of filing or paperwork to do, if nothing else to do. So, So there really isn't ever an excuse as a Scientology staff member to not be working, to not be on the job getting stuff done. That's really the truth of it, and there is always work to do, because Scientology is uh, is has really big ambitions, and the staff always there's always too few staff with too much to do. When it when it comes to clearing a city, or clearing a country, or you know bringing Scientology to the world, well, we're not done yet. There's still Scientology to bring, so let's get to it. Right, this kind of the is sort of how it is in those groups. All right. Um, Let's see what else we got here. Oh, that's right. That's right. Yes, this line here. You nailed it. That's exactly right. According to Valerie, uh, David asked Tom to refrain from relationships while David Miscavige was undergoing litigation, would have brought bad publicity, apparently. Not sure about that myself. Yeah, that sounded weird to me. I don't think that's true. Uh, And uh, Tom himself was certainly expressing interest in, uh, if you were all reading the celebrity media recently, and I don't make a practice out of this, but Tom Cruise tends to be on my radar a lot. And so um, if you were reading the celebrity media about Tom recently, you saw he was pretty interested in Shakira to the point where uh, it was reported that Shakira's handlers and and people were kind of like, could Tom get the hell away? She's apparently not interested in connecting with Tom and good for her. Um, So, I don't know. I don't think Tom's taking a break. Uh, There's always conjecture about who Tom's hooking up with or who Tom's latest, you know, lady is or whatever. So, I don't, you know, I, I mean, if DM asked him to do that, fine. And if he's doing that, fine. But maybe I'm just, you know, reading that maybe celebrity media is just, you know, making stuff up. But it's certainly possible. And if David asked Tom to do that, Tom probably would. Um, but I, I I don't know. It just seems like a pretty unusual ask and I don't see that it makes a lot of sense to do that, but since when do things in Scientology have to make sense, right? So, yeah. All right. Um... Well, exactly, Enzo. As I was going on my role about critical earlier, see, there are certain things in Scientology that you are approved to be critical of, psychiatry being at the top of the list. So, there are the enemies of Scientology and the people that David Miscavige or L. Ron Hubbard ridicule or certain other individuals, you can be critical of them all day long, and nobody in Scientology is going to bad an eye. So it's a complete double standard and another example of a double bind, where you are forced in one area to do a thing, but then there is another area where you're totally not forced to do that or you're forced to do the exact opposite of that. So in Scientology, in a way, you know, it's kind of the cultural Thing to be very very critical of psychiatry and to and to be very very critical of 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 critics of Leah, for example, or Mike, or you know things like Alex Gibney. Um, you can you can say anything you want to about what fuckheads they are all day long, but you don't get to complain about Sea Org members, and that is a, what we call a double standard, right? Uh, So, yes, very, very, very prevalent in Scientology are those double standards. Um, I do not yet. Atypical Paul asks if I have any comments about the news coverage over the T-Rex killer, this Gilgo Beach killer. I I do not. I have not dived into that story actually at all. I've only seen some headlines uh, over the last few days and noted, okay, serial killer, another guy found. Uh, probably eventually I'll find out something about it, but for now I don't really actually know enough to even comment on the story yet. Sorry about that. Um, oh, interesting question. Have you read Stephen Talty's book about David Koresh and Waco? Very interesting, but also very disturbing. Malarianism seems so strong in some cults. I'm gonna have to remind myself as I'm sitting here. Oh God, yeah, the whole that's the whole second coming to Christ thing, yeah, absolutely. I hope you all catch my caught my podcast with um, the man who had been a follower of David Koresh and had been a um, branch Davidian. Um, I think that was about two months ago or something. I did a podcast with a guy and he, we went into the entire backstory of David Koresh and the Waco tragedy. And I boned up on the whole thing prior to doing that interview. And it was absolutely fascinating. And your comment here about, um, you know, millenarianism, this business of there being a second coming and a, you know, golden age on, on earth and all that. Um, yeah, the doctrine of or belief in a future uh, and typically imminent thousand-year age of blessedness beginning with or culminating in the second coming of Christ. That's that's millenarianism. And um, I have not read that book, but I certainly found the topic of Koresh and his beliefs and the idea that he was fated to die because he was the second coming of Christ. Um, and so, you know, he didn't fear death. In fact, he wanted to die. That was his ultimate goal. So the idea that, you know, and the the hostage negotiators and the people on on site at Waco who were dealing with him and dealing with that situation were completely in over their heads. They had no idea what they were dealing with. And the whole... um, Subject of hostage negotiation and understanding the person you're talking to and the the art of negotiation as laid out by Chris Voss, who was a, you know, lead FBI uh, hostage negotiator um, in the time after the the Waco tragedy and the Ruby Ridge tragedy, um, the FBI learned a lot. Right. A lot of law enforcement agencies learned a lot from those horrible, horrible experiences because they really screwed the dog on those bad, like really, really bad. And um, and because they didn't understand this entire concept in addition to a number of other things they didn't understand. So, um, you know, like what a cult is, what coercive control is, what, you know, faith and belief and radicalism and this kind of thing on American soil actually looks like and the results of it, that's what Waco was all about, was the fact that these people did not get that and they didn't deal with these people appropriately as a result. So, um, so it, was quite a, it was quite an object lesson in all of those things. Um, Anyway, and I really, like I said, I recommend you check out my podcast on it because that's, that's the most deep, thorough dive I've done into the whole Waco thing. And we talked about a lot of stuff in that podcast. So I'm um, just going to totally pimp that right now. Okay. All right. Vernon asks, how can a Sea Org member escape from Big Blue? Do they have 24-hour security? Yes, they do. But I will tell you exactly how to escape from Big Blue You get up out of your desk at uh, midnight and you walk out and you just walk away because that's what I did. Um, One night, I think it was a a Thursday or a Friday night, and um, and I was just I had had enough, had enough, and I got up off my desk and it was about eleven forty-five at night and I walked out the back door. And I went up a little flight of stairs. This was in the CLO building, which is behind AOLA, the Advanced Organization. And I went out the back, and there's a little walkway. And I went on to, um, I cannot remember the name of the street now. It wasn't Berendo, it was the street back behind the CLO building. Um, one of the bordering streets of the whole base um, on the far, on the um, west, east end, I think on on the east end of the base, I went off that street and I just walked right off the base. And often that's what people do is they just get up and walk off. And if you're willing to just walk away with whatever is in your pockets, right, that's a way to do it. Now, if you're trying to take baggage with you, this is the funny thing is I have had nightmares about this many, many, many times since leaving Scientology. This exact scenario of escaping the base has been the subject of most of my nightmares about Scientology since I left. And these nightmares have gradually over the years tapered off. They used to be much more intense than they are now. And I um, never have lucid dreaming where I'm aware that I'm dreaming. But the intensity of my feelings about being trapped on the base in my dreams and the feelings of needing to get out and the feelings of fear or terror – about being there have gradually lessened over time even in my dreams but it used to be like i'd wake up and it's like shit i'm back in the sea org right i gotta get the hell out of here and i'm trying to and the funny thing is in my dreams i never just get up and walk out i always want to take my stuff with me and that's what gets you because if you're trying to leave with bags or luggage, right, then you're very obvious and people are going to ask questions and want to know where you're going or what you're doing. And people leave the base all the time on, on tours or recruitment, you know, uh, uh, um, what am I saying? Like a tour, right? They go out and, or on a mission or a project or something. People are leaving the base all the time. But if you're not authorized and if security catches you because they have cameras everywhere on that base, They're everywhere in all the hallways. I think the main mess has cameras. The canteen has cameras. There are cameras all over on the streets. And they have cameras, by the way, up on top of the main, of the big blue building. And on top of um, Lebanon Hall, the two large buildings in that base. They've got cameras that can see a license plate a mile away. They had a, um, I don't know if you guys, you know, this is as good a time as any to share this story with you. In 1995, 1995 late 1995, I was on mission in Asho. Uh, this was my very first Sea Org mission. I had just been in the Sea Org for a few months. I was still squeaky, you know, all wet behind the ears and, and, and squeaky clean, new Sea Org member right off the EPF. I got put on this mission into ASHO, the American St. Hill Organization. So it was there on the base. I was on a mission on the base. Um, And uh, while I was on that mission, a woman, um, a Scientology public, a student on course, was raped in the parking lot of PAC base. Happened right out in the middle of the day, in the open, in her car, at knife point, in the parking lot of LA org same parking lot that's there right now and nobody saw anything because the security cameras were so bad and so few and the security perimeter and security patrolling was so lax and so or non-existent that nobody saw it happening while it was happening And uh, this poor woman experienced what she experienced. And um, security, the response to this was, um, of course, to you know, I don't remember, actually, which is kind of awful that I don't remember. But I don't think they ever caught the guy. Um, So some, you know, some bum, some dude, uh, some Hollywood, you know, scumbag comes on the base and uh, does this to a woman at knife point in her car and then takes off. And security was in so much trouble. Oh my God. So much trouble. Uh, I mean, so many people were busted. The security chief got sent to the RPF. There was the woman who was, um, the woman's security guard who was monitoring the the cameras was supposed to go to the RPF, but she was like, I'm not going to the RPF. You're not, no, I'm not doing that. Because there was no way I could see in these cameras what was happening. She was sitting there looking at all the cameras, but it wasn't clear on them that this was happening. They didn't have a camera right on the car, of course, and the the overview of the parking lot, you couldn't see it. So she refused. She was like, no, and she stuck it out, and she actually uh, held to her guns and did not end up going to the RPF for that Um, because it wasn't really her fault it was nobody's fault. It was, you know, except the criminal. I mean, it just, it happened, but security was supposed to be on the job for this. So they got a whole overhaul and within like five days, every single person on the base who was qualified for security was suddenly in security. All the young men, right. And it was a long, long, uh, uh, evolution getting that to happen. And, um, and that's when they, that's why I know about the cameras is because there was this great big shake, you know, shakeup, and they changed all the cameras. They put, you know, this, they, they invested like a couple hundred thousand dollars in the computer system and security system uh, of PAC and upgraded the entire security uh, apparatus. And so that's when we got the cameras on the roof that could see a license plate a mile away. They went hog-wild with security, and they, uh, they, they really upgraded the security game. And they did it to their credit to prevent something like that from happening again. That's for real. They really did do that upgrade because everyone was so horrified that something like that could happen on a Sea Org base. It was unthinkable. Nobody imagined that that could ever happen. There were security guards on bikes running around the base all the time. There were cameras around. How could this happen? Well, it happened because it was all just sort of a fake security. It wasn't a real security, and they changed that situation. Of course, the, um, the new security chief was probably one of the biggest dicks I've ever met in my life, and to this day, I despise that guy. Uh, but that's neither here nor there. So... Um, anyway yeah well i think hans i think i'm i think this is the answer is that this was in 1995 that this uh that this whole incident went down at pack base and um caused all of that to happen so that's uh that's what i got for you on that one um kind of went a little far afield on that i hope that was a decent answer um All right, Fabian asks, you showed us a book of Scientology exercises. Were they all intended to induce trance? Where did LRH take this 300 exercises? You're talking about the objective processes. These are auditing processes, not exercises. Um, They are things that an auditor does on a preclear. I've got somebody right now writing to me who keeps insisting that you can do solo objectives that you can somehow do these on yourself, and you can't. That's not how they're run. Um, So, uh, yeah. And yes, they are all intended to induce trance, yes. Hubbard found a lot of power and the ability to manipulate people subconsciously. And by inducing trance in people, you can plant um, pre-, during-, and post-hypnotic suggestions in people... Uh, And they will act on those. Not everybody, not 100% of the time. We're not talking about Manchurian candidates. But we are talking about trans induction. And it's a real thing. And when you induce trance in people, you can get them to agree to things, say things, and do things that they wouldn't normally say, do, or agree to. It's a fact. It just is. And objective processing is all about that. It's about getting people under control. Hubbard literally says that. He says the whole point of objectives and the whole point of doing these upper indoctrination TRs, which which you could consider exercises, that's where you get into the TRs. But the auditing is the auditing, and that's where it really comes on strong. The TRs are are bad, but they're nothing compared to what the auditing is doing to you. And that's where you get, you know, put into places that you really don't shouldn't be put in terms of psychological uh you know states of being. So that's what that that's what that you so you're talking about the objectives handbook there. Uh, kind of auditing in Scientology. All right. Um very, very good. That's right. Okay, let's see what else we got here. Oh, super chat. Oh, you're going to have. Oh, this is an interesting question. Adrian asks Are you still monitoring your Patreon or is it not worth it as a revenue stream for you? I see you post a lot of clips, but no new memberships are available. I could you please clarify your question for me because I don't understand what you mean when you say no new memberships are available. I monitor my Patreon status daily. And I try to keep up with my Patreons. All of my content is posted on my Patreon page for them. And I sometimes post messages just for them. I don't do Patreon-only content. However, I am thinking about a a format show that I might be able to do that I'll start as Patreon-only and see how it goes. But I didn't want to start announcing things about that until I'm ready to actually launch, so I'm not going to say a whole lot more about that right now. Um, but I'm very, very, very heavily dependent upon my Patreon supporters. That's what pays my rent is my Patreon supporters. That's what keeps the lights on here is mainly that, not my YouTube income. YouTube is, is um, not as, you know, it's... it. That's not how that works. So, yes, I very, very, very much care about my Patreon supporters and uh, the memberships there. So if there's a problem or issue, please clarify and let me know what that issue is as I will address it. Um, I want my Patreons to be very happy people. Some of them don't want to be acknowledged or known about particularly or get special treatment. And they tell me that, and so that's why you don't see me necessarily always announcing or talking about my Patreon supporters, although I am also, again, thinking about maybe doing some kind of a producer credit role or something at the end of my videos, uh, you know, acknowledging my Patreon supporters. That's an idea that's been given to me that I thought was a really good idea that I might implement, Um, but I wasn't exactly sure because a number of my supporters have said, don't, don't, don't acknowledge me, don't have to say my name, I don't, you know, don't do that, and so I'm a little bit, hmm, do I, don't I, do I, don't I, you know, these are kind of one of those creator conundrums that you run into is, I want to acknowledge people for supporting the show, I want to express my thanks and, and appreciation for that, but at the same time, I want to respect their wishes And not, you know, post their names if they don't want their names posted. You know, it's not a, it's, I think you can see who my Patreon supporters are if you want to, if you really want to find out. But I don't know, maybe not. I haven't, that, you know, I don't know, I don't know that it's a confidential list necessarily. So anyway, that's, um, that's what I can say about that right now. But please do clarify your question and thank you for the super chat. Um, All right, let's see here. Yes. Okay. Fabian asks, did I get it right that verbal abuse can never create an engram? Correct. Um, in order for an engram in science and Dianetics to exist, an engram is defined as a moment of pain and unconsciousness. However slight, you know, however, however uh, short a period of time, if it contains pain and unconsciousness as part of its content, then that event or incident would be considered to be an engram. And you cannot give somebody an engram with words. What you can do with words is you can re-stimulate an engram. So you say the things that approximate the words in someone's engramic experience, and that will bring it back into the present in the person's mind and cause the somatics, the pains and discomforts and associations connected with that engram to start impinging on the person's body and mind. And that is where they will experience newly discomfort, pain, weird feelings, weird emotional responses to this thing that is happening now because they're acting out the contents of the engram in the here and now because of the restimulation. That's how it's supposed to work. None of that is true. But that's dianetics theory. That's how that's how Hubbard says it works. Okay? So yeah, no, um, so verbal abuse is not going to create an engram, but it can certainly re-stimulate engrams. And that's why verbal abuse would be a bad thing. Okay. <laughs> Yes, I said Shakira had handlers. Uh, Shakira, all celebrities do. They have celebrity. They have they have people. They have uh, they have PR people. They have agents. They have uh, press agents. They have media relations. They have people who monitor their activity and and image. Right, it's all about brand and image and reputation management. And I I would refer to those people as handlers. I don't not necessarily that they're in charge of the celebrity. They work for the celebrity, but they you know, are working for the celebrity to monitor the celebrity's best interests uh, kind of thing. Okay. You know, this is a question I've had for a long time. Also, Uncle Radley, why do you think Tom Cruise doesn't just hook up with a regular Scientologist instead of some super famous person? Less uh, bad publicity. I agree. I mean, it seems like it would be a no-brainer. There was conjecture for a while that he and Elizabeth Moss might connect up or something. I don't even know if they know each other. Um, Probably do, right? But um, I, I I don't know. It's not like there are not beautiful, wonderful, amazing Scientology women for Tom Cruise to connect with. But he just doesn't go in that direction, and I have no idea why or what any of that is about. But it certainly would make life easier for him. Okay. Uh, carry on here. All right. Okay. Um, Vernon again. How many Org members who escape become homeless? I only know of one. Two. Two. I know of two. I am aware that there are probably more. I'm not saying it's only two. I'm saying I'm personally aware of, in my memory right now, I can remember two people, Nathan Rich, and um, who I interviewed on my channel years ago, uh, and is no longer homeless. He's made quite a success of his life. Um, Obolensky, Serge. Obolensky, I think it was, um, was another second-generation Sea Org member, born in the uh, 70s, 80s, raised during that time period as the lost generation of Sea Org members, who ended up on the street, ended up um, uh, really tragically blew his hands off. I mean, it was really, really horrible story. He was messing around with uh, some homemade explosives of some kind and he literally blew his hands off um and he ended up really uh, quite mentally uh unsound and on the streets of of hollywood and i and i've heard various things over the years about how people have taken care of him or dealt with that i can't remember what the outcome of it was or if he's still alive now i don't know i haven't heard about him in many 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 years but um, those were the two that I knew of. There, I'm sure there were or are others, um, you know, who just don't end up uh, on the winning side of the equation after they end up leaving. And that's, the, that's one of the tragedies of, you know, of Scientology. And both of them were, both of the people I've been talking about were second-generation Scientologists, right, whose parents just didn't want to have anything to do with them to the point where they were on the street and they still didn't want anything to do with them. It's awful. Um. Okay, let's see here. All right, great question, Uncle Radley. How much time elapsed between the time you decided to leave and when you actually left? Not much. Um, the point where I decided it was time for me to leave the Sea Org was in December of two thousand eleven. I was in Twin Cities. On a mission, in the hallway, uh, on the phone, with my mom, talking to her about my doubts and reservations about the Sea Org and my problems with my wife and with my life and with everything that was going on. And I decided then, I was like, you know, I think I actually don't want to do this anymore. And my mom was like, cool will support you no matter what you decide, right? She was being very, you know, equivocal. She was being like, you know, trying to offer her support but not get too enthusiastic, right, for reasons my mom and I talked about. Um, and I went, no, I think I need to do this. I think, it's, I think it's time for me to go. I think I need to stop doing this. And I started, the wheels really started turning then at that moment, Um. Something's not right. I need to make a change. My life is not going in the direction I want it to go. And I still wanted to be a Scientologist. I just didn't want to be a Sea Org member anymore. And so December 2011 is when that was decided. By January, February, March, or April of 2012, I was back in PAC Having this, this had come out, right? That that I had had issues on the mission. I My plan... Was to finish the mission. <laughs> Even in my desire to leave and decades of abuse and nonsense that I that I'd gone through, I didn't want to let everybody down in Twin Cities. I was out. I had been out in Twin Cities, Minnesota, for a few years, off and on, as a Sea Org member, trying to make the Twin Cities organization, the church there expand. And they we opened them up in the new big building and there were all these staff and we were working with the staff and I liked all the staff. I considered these people my friends as well as people I was working with. And I loved it there. And there were some of those people that I really, really liked. And I wanted to finish the mission there and get it to a done. And then I was going to go back to PAC with a success under my belt and say, I want to leave. And that was going to be it. But what ended up happening is um, things were not going well with my marriage at the time. And my wife sort of like, what's going on? And I was like, things are fine, you know, whatever. And she kind of detected something was wrong. And she wrote a report. And that's what got me called back to L.A., And that's when I dropped the bomb on them. Up until then, I hadn't said anything or even inferred that there was a problem. But I arrived back in L.A., and I'm like, okay, I want to leave. And I wrote it down. I I, I did a resignation letter. And I gave it to the HCO staff, and I said, I don't want to fight. I don't want to argue. I don't want to be talked to. I just want to go. Just put me on the routing form. I just want to do my steps. And I think it was – and then it was December of that year, 2012 we're talking about now – that I finally got through after months and months of dicking around and cleaning bathrooms and organizing closets and and just doing general menial kind of labor around the base while I was waiting for my security check, I finally got my security check and got the hell out of there in December 2012. And by January, February, March, April-ish, May-ish of 2013, I'd gone down the Internet rabbit hole and was totally out. Mentally, physically, all of it. So, uh, so that's the that's the time period there. All right. Um, how are we doing? Oh wow, cruising right along on time. Uh, let's see what else we got here. Just going down the line here. Good, good. I'm glad you guys are liking my talk with Mitch. I I like talking to him. He's a font of fa- f- just absolutely fascinating information. And uh, he and I are scheduled, we're going to schedule another podcast interview to do, uh, where we're going to talk about something that I don't think anyone has ever talked about. Ever. In the ex-Scientology community. I mean, there have been, there have been, I'm just going to totally tease this. There have been a couple of comments made about a topic that is actually really important, And really interesting and totally confidential. And no one talks about it. And Mitch knows all about it. He spent a year and a half working on a particular project that we're going to do a podcast about. And I think you guys are going to love it. I think it is going to be, I have no idea yet, right? We have to have the conversation still. But I think it's gonna be interesting and I look forward to bringing you guys information that has just never been talked about before. So that'll be fun. <laughs> uh, have I seen Oppenheimer yet? I'd I'd say it was the bomb. I'm sure I am I have my ticket and I'm gonna be seeing it on Wednesday and I will absolutely give you guys my uh, full uh, rundown and take on that movie. I'm very, very, very much looking forward to it. It looks. Like, it's going to be explosive, powerful, uh, (laughs) world-shaking. Okay, Uh, me and my silliness. Oh, God, yes. Uh, Young Matador. Oh, this is a great question. Um, Let me tell you. Um, Pull this back up here. Did you find that your sleeping patterns were shot to shit after the first few months of leaving? Dude, my sleeping patterns are still shot to shit. Um, just to be really blunt and honest with you guys, I've never recovered from the, my sleep issues uh, from Scientology ever. Uh, to this day, it's still a problem. I have um, i have I have not had A full night's uninterrupted sleep, eight hours, seven hours, eight hours, uninterrupted, not waking up, not having a nightmare, not having an issue, ever. (laughs) I mean, if I have, I can't remember them. I always wake up in the middle of the night, often multiple times, uh, sleep is erratic, sleep is difficult, and uh, the Sea Org and its constant messing with me for decades is absolutely one of the reasons why. I have no question about that. And even 10 years out, I still haven't really hit on the exact, you know, secret sauce for how to fix that. It's a big, big problem. Um, so yeah, that's, that's a thing. And I don't think about that as a PTSD symptom because I'm not having nightmares as much anymore. It's not that, but it's just irregular sleep patterns, right? It's just trying to figure out and do it and execute it. Just hasn't been possible, right? And I wake up at weird times for all kinds of weird reasons. Yeah, it's a it's a thing, and I will absolutely lay the blame for that on... On Scientology, I don't have a problem with that at all. All right. Uh, Good. Glad you liked the last podcast, Debbie. Um, Well, ex-Scien, when I walked out the door on the last day after being on staff, I briefly wondered if I was giving up my chance to save my immortal soul to stop the endless cycle of death and rebirth. How about you? Not really. I'd gotten to a point after 27 years of staff in Sea Org of realizing that I had been martyring myself. That was a very clear idea in my mind, uh, helping me to realize I needed to stop doing what I was doing, is that I had become a martyr. And it wasn't my goal in life to be a martyr. And that was bigger in my mind at the time and more of an incentive for me to leave Scientology staff or Sea Org than clearing the planet taking over the world because I'd started doing the math already when I was still in on paying staff a living wage and on actually clearing the planet for real like I just did some basic math equations how many how many people live in twin cities how many people are on service? Right. I mean, you think about it. You go, okay. Well, let's see. Um, Minneapolis population: four hundred and twenty-five thousand people live in Minneapolis. Then there's um, Saint Paul, and that's the Minneapolis Saint Paul Twin Cities area. Right? How many people? Uh, a lot. How many people on service? 113. <laughs> yeah, we ain't, we ain't cutting it. We're not impinging on this city. We're not making a difference. We're not clearing our areas. And I had come to realize what we were talking about, clearing the planet, was not a pipe dream. But it was a much longer activity than anyone in Scientology was acknowledging. And I couldn't understand that. I thought something is really, really wrong with everybody in this group that every time I talk to them about this topic, they just blow it off like oh no we're we're doing it. we're totally going to clear the planet I, and I, like it was obvious to me nobody was thinking at all about this thing. We talked about it all the time, but nobody was really thinking about it and I was like, "How is this possible? This doesn't make any damn sense." And then, so the idea of clearing the planet was already, to me, I already realized it wasn't going to happen in this lifetime. It was impossible. The numbers tell you that immediately. So I had already given up on the idea that we were going to clear the planet in this lifetime. And once that went away, all kinds of other things started becoming a lot more obvious, right? Because once you get rid of one illusion you know, you can start debunking your illusions. And that was a big one for me. So once I got past that, and then I got past the whole, oh, we're going to make all the orgs ideal in the next two years. Yeah, come on. Of course we're not, right? And this was, you know, 13 years ago or whatever. So I realized already that that was all bullshit. And so this idea of losing my eternity, and I was not, you know, we weren't going to make planetary clearing happen because I was leaving staff or the Sea Org. I was not guilting myself about that aspect of things anymore because of, you know, because of all the reasons I said there. So, um, so that's how I felt. I was not, i give, you know, the martyr thing really was the big deal for me. It was like, oh my God, I'm being a martyr. Ah, you know, I was like, ah, oh, I could have had a V8. It was, you know, it's like one of those kind of moments. So that's where the a lot of that guilt went away at that point. Okay. Um see what else we got here. <laughs> yes, the reviews of Oppenheimer have been explosive. I have not seen Barbie or Oppenheimer. My wife went and saw Mel saw Barbie last night with her girlfriends. And um I don't have any comments to make about it at this time because I haven't seen it myself um probably not my kind of movie to be honest um that's why my wife went and saw it but um but i'll tell you all about oppenheimer so we'll we'll get there oh okay you asked on patreon about the limited memberships available and there was a reply that insinuated you might add some tears but i didn't see anything yet yeah i just haven't gotten to it yet man i'm sorry i'll get there okay uh, you can give any amount of money you want on Patreon. I'm not ignoring that. I just haven't, I, I got a to-do list that's this long. And my Patreon membership tiers are not at the top of that list. And so that's why I haven't gotten to it yet, but it's on a post-it note on my desk to get to. So um, sorry if I come across a little like whatever on that, but I'm like, You know, if you want to support me on Patreon, you can do so. There's nothing stopping you from doing that right this second. And it doesn't require any, you know, me redoing my membership tiers to do that. I will get to that, but I haven't done it yet. So sorry about that. Oh, um, I don't remember. I No, um, question. Is your final work of your bachelor's degree available to read anywhere? I'd be very interested in reading it. I did not post it. I don't think I posted it. No, I did not post it yet, um, because I was gonna. What I want to do is I'm. I've been working with my professor, my ex professor, my former professor, now my colleague, um, uh, Rob dubrow Marshall, about uh, publishing the results of my research thesis in a more readable, presentable journal type. Format and I—that's again something I haven't gotten to yet, mostly because I didn't have access to the literature for a while. And I know why I need to work with him, and he's, you know, a great, great guy. But it's a little there's a lot of time entered in when you're working with a college professor on something. So because uh, they have, a, you think I'm busy? That, oh my god, right? Rod is uh, incredibly busy. So that's been the sort of bugbear in getting that out, and it's been too long for sure. I could post it. Maybe I should. But I've always sort of had the idea maybe I shouldn't. I don't know. Like there's this I, – I don't know. I'll, I'll – uh, I should post it, shouldn't I? I probably should. All right. We'll, uh, we'll see about getting that done. I would post it – if I post it anywhere, it will be posted on my blog – and if I haven't done it already, I know I posted a couple of papers that I wrote on my blog, but I didn't. I don't think I posted my research thesis, so I'll I'll, I'll give serious serious consideration to doing that. And if I do, I'll get it up in the next few days. Um. Okay, let's see here. Yeah, exactly. Yes, Mister Cruz. <laughs> let's go on a date. Um. Oh, Supreme Rula asks, how come you chose uh, Salford to do your master's? Because Salford is the only school in the world that offers the program that Rod and Linda Dubrow Marshall have put together on the psychology of coercive control. There is no other program anywhere in any other university that touches that program in terms of what it covers and how it covers it. It just isn't, it doesn't exist yet. We are hoping that other people will, will pick up the torch and try to get the program in other universities and run it. Um, I'm not college professor material. I cannot deal with the bureaucracy of working for a college or a university. I am more than happy to teach. I love teaching people stuff, but I, I just could not deal with uh, the, the politics and bullshit of, of uh, academic and and administrative you know bureaucracy. So I won't be the one doing that work. But there but I hope other people will pick up that torch because we need more people in more universities running that program. That would be absolutely amazing. It's a it's a program that creates an army of people who really are fighting and pushing back against cults and domestic violence and, and human trafficking in ways that nobody else really is. And that's the, that's the beauty of what that program is and what it offers. So, um, But you can only do it through Salford right now, and that's why I did it there. Uh, plus, because of COVID, they were offering it as an online program, uh, so I was able to do it from here because it was unrealistic for me to be able to get the time or money to be able to fly to England to do that. So that's why. All right. Um Let me just go through here quickly since we're reaching the end of. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Um, Oh, got it. Thank you, Adrian, for this uh, follow up. I just changed my membership to custom. I was insisting before because I couldn't find the option, and the website's a little hidden. I, I, fair enough. Absolutely fair enough. Um, I, I will be expanding those membership tiers. But it, yeah, Patreon's not super obvious about the fact that you can uh, sign up for any amount that you want, from a dollar to you know ten thousand or whatever. Uh, and yes, it's totally fine with me if any of you sign up for ten thousand dollars a month. Okay. <laughs> Um, do I ever light a, uh, patchouli candle and take a bubble bath while drinking Chardonnay? No, not, none of those things are things that I do, but thank you for asking, Chris. Um, that's right. Gotta admit, Hans, you are absolutely right when you say coercive control is still largely a taboo theme being ignored because so many people benefit from exploiting it. You are absolutely right, 100% right. You would be amazed at the levels of duplicity and deception that exist in every level of our society uh, around this stuff. And there are an awful lot of people who do not want to be exposed for the controlling, coercive people they are. That is absolutely true. Um all right. Let's just take a quick look here before we start wrapping up. Okay, great question. Let's let's wrap up with a with a good one here. How tough is it to get someone to leave a cult? I heard somewhere that getting a culty to start considering their leader is wrong about one subject starts them down the road of questioning everything. Absolutely correct. Um Another way, another avenue of approach is to educate or inform the person about other cults, other abuses, other groups that do stuff. Not theirs, not their leader, not their group, other groups, right? You want to get somebody out of Scientology? Have them watch Shiny Happy People. Have them watch uh, Wild Wild West, have them watch uh, up, you know, the the documentaries about uh, Larry the Guru uh, from that university uh, that was recently posted. There are, you know, that abusive guy who who took over the lives of about five college kids. There's, there are so many documentaries and educational pieces out there about cults that you can use to tell a cult member about culty stuff without ever mentioning their cult. And that will get their wheels turning often, not 100%, nothing's guaranteed in this, but it's a way of getting their wheels turning because they'll watch shiny, happy people and they'll see controlling behavior, abusive religious behavior, physical abusive behavior, sexually abusive behavior, and they'll be like, huh... You know, just deep, deep, beat in the back of their head. They're like, huh, I think I saw something like that once in Scientology. Or that sounds a little like something I had happen to me one time. Huh. You know, just a little, little thing. And you just let those seeds get planted. Getting somebody out of a cult is usually a long-term affair. It's usually not a one-and-done. You don't have a conversation with somebody unless you're a professional, like doing an intervention. It's not usually a one-and-done and even a one-and-done is hardly ever a one-and-done. Even when you're doing an intervention, it's usually a days-long process talking to the person and stripping them of the false information and manipulations and, and coercion that they've been uh, suffering from and not willing to acknowledge or, or see. And that's the whole challenge is getting them to see it. And they, and they don't want to see it. They are motivated to not see it. They will, they, everything in their frontal lobes is telling them this is a good thing. Everything in their moral foundations is telling them this is a good thing. In fact, it's, their moral foundations have been aligned with the cult in such a way that it doesn't just, it's not just a good thing, it, it's the best thing. It has to be a good thing, and you can't argue with that. You you can try. I mean, you can argue with it, but good luck. Trying to do a frontal assault on somebody's, you know, I used to talk about this in terms of a thought fortress, and it's a great analogy. It still works. A person will present to you a fortress of thought. They've got walls, very, very thick stone walls built up in their mind justifying and rationalizing their belief. And their belief sits at the heart of a castle. And that castle is built of thinking, of thoughts. And you have to bust down the walls. Well, good luck. There the, there are no walls stronger than the walls we create in our mind. Because no amount of real-world fire or, or steel or bullets or explosions can touch it. There is nothing more powerful than belief. And you cannot do a frontal assault and expect to get anywhere. Very rarely you will get somewhere, but not often enough to justify trying. You really shouldn't try a frontal assault. What you should try is you have to get invited into the castle. they got to open the door for you. You can batter at those walls all day long and you're not going to get anywhere. But if you, if they open the door for you, you can walk right in and then you can help them walk right out. Right. And that's the analogy is you got to help them walk out on their own or you're not going to get anywhere. Right. It's, it's, I mean, any parent knows this. Try changing your kid's mind. Right. Good luck. Good luck. Until the child decides to change his own mind, you're not going to get anywhere. You know it. And and at times, you just give up. You just go, well, I'm not going to change his mind. You just pick him up or you just control him and do whatever it is you need to do anyway. But you haven't gotten anywhere with the kid doing that. You know that, right? You know they're going to get back at you. You know they are. You know they are, right? They're not going to forget they're going to do something they're going to say something at exactly the wrong time right and they're doing it to get you back so even with little kids you know you th- you can't win that way in that fight kind of mode right it's it's a cooperative effort to get somebody out of a cult and you got to work with the person because if you're trying to bring the person themselves the deep little buried Personality that's buried under all the cult bullshit. If you're trying to foster that and bring that out, you have to empower that person, that personality that's buried under all the bullshit. And they'll take care of all the bullshit themselves if you do that. Because they're kind of the only ones who can. You know, because it's their bullshit. It's not your bullshit. You think, you know, you're going to talk them out of it. You're going to reason them out of it. You're going to explain it to them, and they're going to get it. And it doesn't work that way. It never works that way. So that's why you have to be invited in. Okay? So that's uh, that's how I can talk about that, I suppose. Hope that helps. Um. All right. <laughs> One million Namibian dollars. All right. I will I will wrap up with this question and we'll be done today. What are your thoughts on the sound of freedom? This is the new movie about child trafficking um, that is all the rage, even though it's really just kind of raging about itself. It's, I'm not impressed. Um, I did not see the movie, and I probably should see it before I give you any opinions about the movie itself, but I do know from things that I've read about it by people who know what they're talking about that the movie does misrepresent the issue of child trafficking and how it is uh, how it's done. Um, there are uh, there's insinuations or inferences or or straight up you know stuff shown on the screen. That is, that is either exaggerated or hyperbolic or nonsensical about how child trafficking works. Child trafficking and child labor trafficking and sex trafficking are very, very huge problems on this planet. They are not small problems. They're huge problems. Um, but they are not fought by, you know, white saviors who, you know, uh, go off the reservation and decide that they're going to be white knights and they're going to take care of it all. It doesn't work that way. Um, The problem is huge. It is multinational uh, and international, in other words. the Governments don't get along on this. Uh, Cultures don't get along on this. There are all kinds of problems with how to deal with human trafficking. Uh, This is a subject that I've studied academically. I've read papers on this. That's been my mainline experience with it. I've discussed it with some people who are in the industry who know about it. Um, and it's nasty, nasty, nasty stuff. But it doesn't really help when it's misrepresented. You know, raising awareness is good, but raising awareness in such a way that people have completely wrong ideas about a thing isn't really as helpful as it should be. Because then people think the solutions are to do something other than what you really need to do. And that's where we lose the plot. And that's why movies like Sound of Freedom do us a disservice because they don't accurately represent it so badly they don't represent it that people think that by paying for tickets to this movie, they're somehow going to be fighting child trafficking. And they are not. Not one dime of what's happening with that movie is is helping child trafficking, at least not that I've seen. So that's why I have a problem with that you know, with the media fervor, uh, around that movie. I don't have a problem with somebody making a movie or glorifying themselves or being on an ego trip. And apparently that's what the guy who's behind this movie is kind of about fine. You know, all kinds of people do that, but that's Steven Seagal behavior. And let's not misrepresent that as some service to humanity. That's my, you know, that's kind of where I'm seeing the, this movie right now as, um, as to how it's being positioned and talked about. So, that's kind of my take on it as somebody who, who kind of does know about this topic, and um, and as far as, you know, as far as the movie itself goes on the merits of the movie itself, I can't, you know, I can't really talk about that or give any kind of film critique of it because I haven't, I haven't seen it yet, so that's what I can say about that. Yeah, exactly. Um, good, 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 guys. All right, so yeah, exactly. Yeah, Steven Seagal. Now there's a weird one. Tell me about it, man. Talk about somebody who fooled the world for a while. All right, guys. I think we've had a good hour of power here. Uh, talking about this stuff. Thank you very much for coming around. I will thank you for uh, nudging me on that Patreon stuff. I, I definitely will get that sorted out. And um, i really, actually, now that you bring it up and now that I'm actually sitting here thinking about it, the reason I haven't acted yet is because I modeled my Patreon levels or tiers around Scientology IAS membership levels. and I started, I was, And I've been sitting here thinking to myself, do I want to continue that motif or do I want to change the levels up to something else, some other theme or motif? And I'm thinking of doing that. And, um, yeah, I think, that's, I think that's the problem or issue if I'm remembering it right. But it's been a while. So you're right. I do need to go back and take a look at that stuff. So I will do that. All right, guys. Uh, wonderful chat today. Thank you very much for coming around. It was fun talking with you all. And uh, on that happy note... I will see you guys uh, tomorrow uh, after Scientology, straight up and vertical, and usual content. All right, bye-bye, guys.